Hey, you're listening to Subvert, a podcast from Corporate Accountability. We're a 40-plus-year-old organization powered by people. We wage strategic campaigns to stop corporate abuse against human rights and democracy. I'm Lena Greenberg. I use they-them pronouns, and I'm our press officer. I'm Mikel Lejeune, and I use he-him pronouns. I'm our associate campaign director, and today we're going to be talking to people organizing to secure what could be a huge game-changer for holding transnational corporations and other kinds of businesses accountable. It's a treaty known as the UN Treaty on Business and Human Rights. For far too long, people who have wanted to hold corporations accountable for causing harm have had to rely on a perfect storm. Good faith of the industry, countries that are perfectly set up to have political will to take corporations to task, and affected communities who have the resources to take up these cases and survive the formidable opposition of abusive corporations. So, We could keep hoping for that perfect storm, but people's movements have said enough is enough and are now participating in the work of drafting a whole new treaty that could hold transnational corporations to account no matter where they are based and no matter who has been harmed. In our first episode, we looked at how big tobacco and big food manipulate policymaking, fund junk science, and treat human rights as collateral. In our second episode, we heard about the growing movement to hold big oil and gas accountable for damage caused to people and planet as a result of these corporations knowingly fueling the climate crisis. In all these cases, corporations utilize laws and policies, or lack thereof, to put profit over people. In all of these cases, corporate abuse can only be prosecuted on a case-by-case basis, which is often very challenging. But the UN Treaty on Business and Human Rights seeks to acknowledge and stop corporate abuse globally across industries and borders. If you are wondering, you know, why are multinational corporations essentially not following due diligence, human rights due diligence, and making sure that wherever they're operating, they are conforming to obligations and responsibilities under human rights law? The reason is because at the moment, there isn't an international mechanism to hold these corporations accountable to the activities that they uh, perform. That was Mona Sabella. I'm Mona. I'm from Palestine, uh, but I am currently based in Dublin. Growing up in Palestine, seeing how, you know, the occupation and the history of colonization has been driven so evidently by corporate interests and corporate power, I've always had an interest in in trying to learn more about how we can suppress corporate power and how we can place people before profit and how that can be the thing that informs the agenda, the human rights agenda, but also people's agenda within the public sphere and in terms of public interest and how we live our lives and what rights, you know, we are able to to enjoy and so on. Mona works at the Economic Sociocultural Rights Network, or ESCRNet for short. She coordinates the Corporate Accountability Working Group which is a worldwide network with nearly 90 members. ESCRNet is one of two main coalitions that Corporate Accountability works with to advance this treaty. Corporate Accountability is organizing around this treaty, just like our organizing on our other campaigns, is focused on preventing corporate interference in the treaty development process. Today, we're also going to speak with Gonzalo, who works at the Transnational Institute, or TNI, 
TNI is a part of the global campaign to dismantle corporate power and stop impunity, which is the other coalition we work with on the treaty. My name is Gonzalo Barron. I'm an Argentinian living in Brazil. I'm an associate fellow of the corporate power team in TNI and as TNI members of the global campaign to stop corporate impunity. The Transnational Institute is a kind of a think tank for, for progressive or leftist background. We push for, for mobilizing together with social movements and uh, grassroots organizations from the South, but also from the North uh, in, in moving actions for a just world. We spoke with Kia as well. I'm Yamaha Jesipato, a.k.a. Gia. I'm based and I work in Cape Town, South Africa at an NGO called the Alternative Information and Development Center. I coordinate a program actually called Alternatives to Extractivism and Climate Change. And within that program lies the Southern African Campaign to Dismantle Corporate Power. We're regional. We include many... Um, countries in the Southern African region, so Mozambique, um, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Madagascar, and then we were doing and hoping to unfold some work actually in the DRC, and um, we work with some folks also in Namibia. We actually have how the campaign is set up is that there's um, different organizations and movements, and these different organizations and movements are actually based or work in the different countries. Throughout the episode, we'll be hearing from these three organizers about their work, why it brings them to the UN to work on this treaty, and their visions of what this treaty can do to stop corporate abuse. So, Kia, can you tell us a bit about why going up against corporate power is so important to you and how you do that in your work? This is like literally my interest and focus. I think it's crucial. I think challenging corporate power is really at the nap of trying to deal with the current development paradigm that we live under. Because when you kind of look at who's doing what against who, ever so often it is transnational corporations who are involved. I mean, you will find sort of state actors, but they do act and move through, I guess, the packaging of a business or through the model of trying to make profits. So I think trying to change the world and trying to change our society fundamentally is set up is actually through trying to tackle corporate power. So our vision is wanting to develop those that are affected um, understanding and knowledge around actually who's causing the turmoil that they're going through. So we did that by having a three-year permanent people's tribunal to get communities to come together and present cases against different transnational corporations. It was interesting because we brought different communities from different parts of the region and some of them shared stories and tactics on how they're challenging sometimes the same company. And through that, we're then able to build sort of people to orbit around and push this demand to dismantle corporate power. So in essence, it's about knowledge sharing, developing knowledge capacity building for those who are most affected to be the ones that reclaim their power and or sovereignty. Wow, it is. It's so cool to hear about this what seems like a, a very place-based kind of constellation of, of organizations that are deeply connected to talking about and understanding the specific struggles to each group of people and how they're connected. Given that y'all are so organized already, why 
does it feel worth it to be involved in this process that's happening at the UN outside of this region? The short answer to your question is globalization, but the long answer to your question is globalization. So, for example, we can't have... We can't have like a few, you know, communities affected by extractivist activities making noise in the southernmost tip of the world, you know. So it's important for us to build, organize in the region, on the continent and in the world. And one of the processes to build and organize is also obviously demanding for a UN binding treaty. I mean, the UN is supposed to be a supra international organization and it's supposed to be protecting human rights as a whole. So um, if we struggle at local and regional levels or even continental levels, having something at an international level can sort of set precedent and push um, regional, continental and even local bodies to follow suit. So it's kind of like a, a parallel kind of process where we want to develop things on our side, but also making sure that they exist at an international level. Kia, can you talk more about uh, your involvement with the UN Treaty on Business and Human Rights and what that's been like? It's been, to be very, very honest with you, it's been particularly complicated because um, it's easy to sort of sometimes see the linkages of stuff, but those that we're building with and wanting to um, to strengthen sometimes are um, it's difficult for them to connect the dots. So it's been difficult to sort of like take part in the processes at a Geneva level and try to make sure that we articulate it and unpack it to comrades on the ground and also for them to be able to understand that actually um, demanding and doing things at the UN level is important for um, local struggles themselves. However, it's been extremely inspiring to see this a network of different organizations working and pushing for this. I think ever so often when we hear of processes at the UN, we think it's a bunch of like, you know, cats and suits and whatnot. So it's cool to see that some real activists who are interested in um, sort of unfolding and pushing this demand. So given given this kind of disconnect between what it's like to actually be in a place that's impacted by corporate abuse and the kind of cats and suits vibe at, at the UN, why, why is the treaty important beyond just connecting the dots? What's at stake? Oh. Everything is at stake, actually. I think um, we've seen corporate abuse manifest and grow, particularly like, let's say from the 80s, right? And and um, corporates and basically corporate impunity keeps on metamorphosizing and changing. I mean, particularly in the African continent, we find many of our states or particularly governments who are being held sort of, you know, by the news, by these corporates saying, you need to implement policies and do things that are going to help us to be able to make money. So, I mean, I don't want to be all doom and gloomy, but holding corporations accountable and pushing for a particular treaty like this is actually the most important thing to do. So um, if we don't have something like this to hold corporations accountable, every kind of facet of life is in danger. Um, so, you know, it's, it's either now or never, basically. One of the, the really important pieces of language, and I think something new in the treaty space is the idea of the primacy of human rights. Gonzalo, can you just share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, in theory, human rights are above all, all other rights, no? in theory. In practice, no. In practice, uh, human rights become a positive loss. No? 
So then you, you have a, a, a gap between universal uh, human rights and the real operation. And in the middle, you have many investment treaties, free trade agreement, uh, the WTO, World Trade Organization, uh, uh, that generate new binding obligation for states. Uh, and uh, many of them allows the violation of human rights. So what we are saying is that we need something that put really uh, human rights above all those uh, investment and free trade agreements no? or rules uh, generated by WTO and um, the supremacy of human rights. Meaning that if, if an agreement promotes or allows the violation of human rights, uh, that should be cancelled and it's not valid since there is the supremacy uh, of that at international level. Okay, back to Kia. For me, in my mind, it's about going back to the basics. Life is supposed to be putting um, humans, you know, and people at, at the forefront of everything. And at the moment, how we live, what's being put forth, and, and, and it's important is profit. So when we're saying, and when we're developing con- um, language around the treaty, and we're saying that it's about the primacy of human rights, for me, it's about making sure that humans' well-being on the earth are put first, and profit or even business comes last. You were just talking about human rights and how mechanisms like this have a potential to protect human life. Can you talk a little bit about how this treaty would be able to protect non-human life as well? Well, that's a very good question. The human rights are centered in the in the in the human being, but the human being is inserted in in the nature and environment and so on and so forth. One of the rights is the right to livelihood and environment and so forth. So in that sense, many of the cases that we advocate for are environmental uh, problems, uh, mining or intensive agriculture or, or damages to, to the forest uh, that have had impact in, in people and uh, the conditions where these people uh, live. So in that sense, our, our rights also uh, of the nature, as, as, we, as we call them. Gonzalo, can you share a little bit about how the demand for a whole new treaty on human rights and business kind of arose? Well, in 2013, we we have two big spaces from civil society, and then we have some states that push for that. We have the, the global campaign to dismantle corporate power and, and stopping corporate impunity. And we have the ESCR net, the important network of human rights organizations, defenders all over the world. So you have our network, the global campaign that was mostly a social movement. And then you have the other one that is mostly focusing on, on human rights. And you have then the, the Ecuadorian plus South Africa and some other 85 countries that say, well, uh, the UN guiding principles are not enough. We need binding obligations. So they, they, they released a, a statement in 2013. And then we, the, these two big spaces gather uh, and we join efforts in, in the so-called uh, treaty alliance. Mm-hmm. And we mobilized a lot in, in during uh, the last, the second half of, of uh, 13 and, and, and 14. And they approved in June 2014 a resolution, the famous resolution, uh, that opened uh, a process. So, so that's kind of the, 
the starting point, let's say, of, of this uh, negotiation in this process of the treaty. And that was the day that I cried there in, in Palais de Nation uh, in Geneva, that is where all the negotiations happened. So that was kind of amazing. What a victory. It's so obviously so much work to kind of fight your way through the halls of power. So Mona, what happens next with the treaty? The treaty has been going on for uh, quite some time now, for over five years. And essentially what's happening now is we're negotiating a text. So there's states and there's civil society organizations, social movements, and unfortunately as well, businesses who, you know, one can argue should not have a space at the table to, to discuss something that is such a conflict of interest, you know, to, to regulate themselves, basically. But what happens next is these groups come to the table and they, they try to argue for a really strong text of, of the treaty. You know, for, for states, that means something else. For civil society, it means another. So for ESCRNet members, for example, making sure that indigenous people's rights are protected is a huge issue. You know, talking about the right to self-determination within the treaty, ensuring that corporate capture, um, you know, is is kind of, you know, corporate capture is, is not an issue that we have to worry about within at least the context of the treaty, uh, you know, provisions and, and different kinds of issues that, that we've been focusing on. One of the ways corporate capture happens is when corporations interfere in the integrity of a treaty or policy process. Corporations do this to advance their own agendas, often at the expense of human rights. Corporate capture will be a big focus in the next negotiation session, which will happen in October of 2021. This is where governments, social movements, civil society, and unfortunately businesses will gather to advance the treaty. Mona told us a bit more about what we can expect at that session. So what what happens now is we'll try to to get a strong text as as possible. And so for someone like ESCR Network, we would try to push, you know, for rights that are, you know, being raised by some of our members, social movements on the ground that are really essential. So, you know, trying to have a focus on conflict affected areas within within the treaty, again, on indigenous people's rights, the right to self-determination, and making sure, you know, that the treaty covers all these really fundamental rights that we have to kind of try to uphold. I think when we hear about what's at stake, it's many times talking about the problem, right? And then we need to bring people along in the the arc of organizing and like what we're visioning. So when when you think about the treaty, can you can you think about or talk about a specific case or situation that could be impacted in the future or where having a strong treaty could be a benefit? So um, I'll use, I think, one particular major case is around uh, violence, you know, which is um, 
technically a transnational corporation but is a state-owned enterprise never know funny little thing based in brazil has done weird things in brazil has done even more worse things in mozambique and i mean last year they were implicated in um the oil spillage in mauritius so having a treaty um around holding corporations accountable and establishing actually an international court because you know the ICJ exists and the ICC exists but we don't have a body where we would try these corporations. The ICJ and the ICC are the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. If you're not familiar, the corporation Kia is talking about is Vale, the second largest mining company in the world. So having a treaty would then help us to sort of bring cases um, that won't have necessarily proper jurisdiction because Brazilians can try Vale in Brazil, you know, and but in Mozambique, what happens in Mauritius, what happens? So now we cut all that nonsense and we're able to hold Vale accountable through the treaty and establishing a court like that. Gonzalo also brought up Chevron in Ecuador. Chevron was taken to court for environmental destruction because of massive impacts on thousands of indigenous and peasant peoples in the Ecuadorian Amazon. The Union of Affected Peoples by Chevron Texaco, also known as UDAPT, has been fighting for justice for the last 27 years. We have the famous case of, of Chevron in Ecuador, that even if this uh, people that was affected by Chevron no, uh, in the uh, Ecuador, um, uh, Ecuadorian Amazon region, even if they got the juridical decision in their in their country that favored them, and in many different levels of the uh, of the Ecuadorian juridical system, Chevron never paid anything. Never paid anything. The case of Chevron is is dramatic because what they did was to empty the the accounts and left like some hundred dollars <laughs> to pay the affected communities. Yes. Eh? So what can we answer to? To the people if saying, well, we need something over and eh, on top of, of, the, of the state to help these uh, people access uh, to justice. Then you have a different range of, of uh, mechanisms to, to produce that. For instance, there is this uh, mechanism of uh, extraterritorial obligations, meaning what? That if even if you are your rights are violated, let's say, in one country. And you can go to another country where this company has assets or has headquarters and so on and so forth. Both Gonzalo and Kia are talking about extraterritorial obligation for transnational corporations, also known as TNCs. Extraterritorial obligation can make something called extraterritorial litigation possible. Basically, this allows people impacted by foreign TNC's abuses to hold that TNC liable in the jurisdiction of a court where it's based or another country it operates in. So people in Ecuador could take a French corporation to court in France. That's incredible and could have the added benefit of forcing countries that are home to TNCs to better regulate those corporations' activities abroad. Imagine, Dutch courts met with a wave of dozens of cases just from Shell's abuses across Africa. Do you think the Dutch would want to maybe rein in Shell's activities at that point? Would democratic institutions with the authority to hold TNCs accountable finally do so, so they wouldn't have to deal with the liabilities being brought to their doorstep? In short, this could be the game-changer impacted communities around the world have been waiting for. If there were to be a court where 
these cases could be tried, then all of a sudden there's there's a path forward to solutions. What could be the possibilities of holding corporations accountable? Um, how is the how is the treaty a source of hope? Well, I think for me the the treaty is a is a I guess it's a it's a cog in the whole machinery or it's one little link within the chain, what actually gives me hope is the possibilities of organizing and bringing people together to be able to reclaim their power. And one of the ways to assist that is through the treaty. So, and and that's what gives me hope and inspires me. So demanding for the treaty and pushing for the treaty is a movement building um, opportunity, right, or tool. So the possibilities of building movement, strengthening people, and for us to, be, to, for us to be able to say that, yo, listen to us, we are actually the people that matter, is what excites me and inspires me. And the treaty process is one of the things for me um, in relation to building people's power that that you know that that plays a role for me wow you got me so excited over here i'm so excited can you can we can we go a step further and and will you talk about what what it looks like to to reclaim power as as people and and dismantle corporate power and how do we work towards that vision it seems like the treaty is is a little part of that that grand idea well, for me, at the very least, it is. Uh, but it's also um, your your question is huge and complex because it's something that I I grapple with with comrades and friends. And I always say that I think sometimes we spend a lot of time really working around what we're trying to break, but we don't spend um, time around what we're trying to build. And I mean to expand that, we haven't been spending a lot of time around what kind of new world and society we envision. So um, for me, I think. I think the, the in essence, for me, the kind of society and world that I'd like to see out of this process of our people reclaiming their power is where, um, I guess, democracy is in motion and people's needs are put forth. I think right now we're driven by things that don't really make sense, that alienate us from who we are as human beings in our nature. And um, I guess for me, my the vision and what I'm trying to see at the end is that once hopefully we've reached that utopia of reclaiming our power, we're able then to, to, to build a society in a world where our needs are put forth um, first. And what I mean our needs is that the needs of human beings. And there's different examples of different communities actually around the world who are starting to do that and implementing some of these things. And I think, I guess, probably maybe our responsibility is as much as we're naming and shaming, we should also name and, and, and amplify those, um, those struggles and those examples of a different world. I think that it's, it's really important for everyday people that are like listening right now to understand their role in all of this. Are there any specific actions we should ask people to take? Any how how can our listeners support this work? There is one specific action we are we are now doing. This open letter. This open letter is to denounce, let's say, uh, the corporate capture at the UN level, no? And how through the multi-stakeholderism, uh, companies are are gaining ownership on the decision-making process. Multi-stakeholderism is the idea that policies should be made with the involvement of all potentially impacted entities. This might sound nice, but actually it's really dangerous because it allows corporations to insert themselves into decision-making processes, treaty negotiations, 
and gives more power to corporations while decentering the demands of people and social movements. So, the sign-on letter. It's a sign-on. It's a letter open to, to sign-ons, organizations or, or individuals. You have to ask your own authorities, your own government to, to move with this. In the case of the U.S., it's a, it's a very key country because you know, obvious reason now that biden is on, <laughs> on 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 the presidency maybe you have a, a new chance and ask the officers in in the government uh, to move on that and that would be of a major uh, help and would make a real difference in this process not simple <laughs> We've worked on a comic series. The first episode will focus on corporate capture of the United Nations. So if you wanted to know what corporate capture of the United Nations mean and how to try and prevent that from happening within the treaty process, then this would be a great thing to a read up on and check out the, the comic itself because a very clear, consistent message from ESCRNet members about the concept of corporate capture, because that's also something that has to be a covered by the the treaty itself in terms of protections. It would be great to to share it widely on on social media, to ask questions, to reach out to us, to call us out on things that you'd want to know more about or you have questions about and so on. Can you talk about why tools like the comic are important to the movement behind the UN Treaty for Business and Human Rights? What's important is to try and access as many people as possible. And in our current reality, there's a lot of Zoom meetings and a lot of, you know, reports to read, especially in our kind of work. We were trying to get people to kind of think about this and see this from a different perspective. There's definitely a place for art in human rights as well. So, you know, we wanted to reach a wider wider audience and to kind of say that the treaty process is not a process for human rights professionals or, you know, lawyers or advocates who are, you know, working within the UN or with the UN. No, the treaty process is for everybody. We're talking about a UN treaty and the power of organizing too. When I think about, you know, how people see the world, they see a world that's like cracking apart, that's like bursting at the seams, right? And there's been this this movement of of positive organizers that are trying to see those cracks as an opening, as a place to start seeding something new and different. And I think that you were talking about that, but when you think about what that new world looks like. What does it feel like to live in that new world as someone that's based in South Africa, that's, you know, fighting with people that are impacted on the front lines? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I think how it feels like it's twofold for me. Um, The first thing is, uh, personally, I would like to be laying at the beach right now and not involved in anything. So that's what it will feel like for me. And I think the the second part is that I think 
the the dysfunctional relationship that we have with nature and the dysfunctional relationship that we have with each other um, stops and we change that. I think the way it's been embedded in our psyche as human beings that we have to work, we have to make money, um, we have to technically abuse each other and we have to expropriate everything from nature um, needs to change. And for me, a different society means us working towards in changing changing this thing that we think is who we are as people and um, ultimately me being able to lay on the beach. There's different ways for us to cut this pie and I can go on forever. But I think once once we start really um, unpacking some of these entrenched notions of what we are as people is where then we're going to start developing a whole different society and world. I think for me is, I think I like to say that now is the time it's, it's, we're not going to get this chance. Um, so we need to figure it out quickly and um, come together. And I think also, and this is broadly for organizing and trying to dismantle all the stupid things that we're fighting against. And I think we, we're going to have to let go of a lot of things so we can be able to hold um, hands and, and, and figure a lot of this out. And above and, and beyond that, I think it's, this is the time to kind of see how we weave in history, experience, theory, and proper action. Thanks. Wow, Lena, it was so fun and exhilarating to hear from Mona, Gonzalo, and Kia. There's so much incredible insight we gained. Um, you know, and for, for you, Lena, like what were some important takeaways that we can summarize for listeners? Well, there's so much here running through every conversation we had is that this landmark treaty, the, the UN Treaty on Business and Human Rights, it's still in development. But if and when it's signed, ratified and implemented, which could happen in the next, you know, handful of years, this treaty could mean a lot for the future of all of the movements that each of the people we spoke with are involved in. And even though this treaty is a big monolithic international thing, it's clear that it would have impacts on each of the kind of local and regional campaigns that that we heard about and that are going on all over the world. Yeah, it's clear that this treaty means a lot to people. And I was really moved by by Kia's presence. I feel like Kia's that tried and true uh, movement organizer, that person that's that's from the community and thinks about all the ways that we can uh, leverage people power to to get the justice that we need in the yeah. world. And, and I was just like really hearing about, you know, the regional Southern African campaign and the power that's there and and using that power and also raising up and giving platform to people on the ground uh, in some of the most impacted countries from corporate abuse and and going to Geneva every every year mm-hmm. to negotiate this treaty and hearing from her the the hope that she sees in that and the interconnectedness of the struggle on the ground. There's a really powerful vision behind what this treaty could look like. I think for me, I've I've encountered this treaty in a couple of settings before. You know, I helped out with some of corporate accountability's media work during the last treaty negotiations in October. And so I I knew about the treaty, I knew what it was, but 
talking to all of these people actually made it real to me. And I kept having these moments of like, oh, this is what these mechanisms are for. And this is what this big, long fight is about. It's not, you know, just trying to push a document so that there's a document. It's actually this treaty can create mechanisms to pursue justice that don't exist anywhere otherwise. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point, too, is that there is nothing like this. <laughs> you know, I, I work on the tobacco campaign and our treaty is is a single issue in its scope, which is about the tobacco epidemic. It it touches a bunch of different systems and, you know, a bunch of different ways that the industry is inserting itself. In. But this is unlike anything we've ever seen before. And um I, I was thinking also about the, the extraterritorial litigation, which is this just this wild concept of, of what accountability could look like if countries all around the world showed up in good faith in this globalized system in the way that, that we were promised, right? Like if, if we're going to globalize and allow the globalization of a free market, if we're going to globalize corporate activities, we must globalize justice. It's the I was first just step. thinking that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> if we're going to live in a world where transnational corporations can be transnationally abusive with impunity, we have to meet that global problem with a global solution. And hmm. obviously, this this treaty is one tool in a big toolbox of ways to stop corporate abuse and hold corporations accountable for those abuses. But it's clear that this kind of scale of a solution is really necessary considering the kind of problem we're talking about. This episode was co-hosted by me and Lena Greenberg. Lena also wrote the show. Eric Johnson and I co-produced and edited the show. Eric mixed the show and also wrote our music. We heard from Mona Sabella, Kia Sapato, and Gonzalo Beron. Thanks to everyone who joined in and supported this episode. Extra special thanks to Shada Nafisi for her consultation on this episode. Thanks for listening to Subvert. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support our work as a sustaining member, you can join our movement at corporateaccountability.org donate. For more information on the Alternative Information Development Center, ESCRNet, or the Transnational Institute, visit corporateaccountability.org subvert.